All right, take a Bible. We're going to do uh, a little bit of looking around in the scriptures. If you're looking at the outline, you know there's a lot of blanks on there. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, so we kind of have to move fast. And I know when you're sitting in a seat or a pew and you're trying to take notes and you're trying to flip in your Bible and you've got all that on your lap and you're shuffling around, I know that's uh, tricky sometimes. And so I'll try not to do too much back and forth and uh, filling in blanks and, and flipping around to verses. I've included a lot of these references so you can go back and uh, you can look these up and you can read them on your own. Our study is called The Truth. And the subtitle, I guess you would call it, for the study is No Believe, Share, Defend. And the idea there is that the truth begins as something that we have to know with our mind. It's an intellectual knowledge. It's an intellectual understanding. That has to come first. But it's not enough because the truth has to settle in our hearts. In other words, Uh, James 2 says the demons have an orthodox formulation of who God is. They understand that, but it doesn't affect them. It doesn't change them. They're still living in rebellion towards God. And so it's great that you know the truth. That's a great place to start, and it's the only place you can start. But the truth also has to be something you believe, something you accept, something that, that settles in your heart. And... When that truly happens, it will be something that you share. I told you last week that this series is not intended to make you feel guilty about all the opportunities you missed to share the gospel with somebody. That is not my point. I'm not trying to work up some contrived guilt trip because I know for a fact that if I come in here and I try to manipulate you and make you feel guilty about, oh, you should share the gospel more, you don't do it, you're lousy, you're just going to feel like a worm and feel bad about it, and nothing's going to change. You're not going to share the gospel more because you feel guilty. It just doesn't work that way. But when you truly understand it and you truly have it settled in your heart, it ought to be something that at some point in time with certain people in certain situations, it comes out of your mouth and you share that with people. And lastly, it should be something that you defend. This is going to the point of not just sharing the truth with people, but helping them understand why you believe what you believe. Helping them to make sense of why they should abandon their worldview and maybe adopt a a Christian worldview. And we'll talk about worldview later in this study. But tonight we're going to lay some more foundation. We did that last week, and this week we're really going to lay an important part of the foundation. We're just going to talk about what is the gospel. And I'll start off with one story. I think I've told it to you guys at some point since I've been here the last couple of years. And uh, you've heard it, some of you, some of you haven't heard it, but that's the way it goes with preachers. We, just, we only have so many stories, and you get to hear them over and over and over again. Just smile and act like you've never heard it. So it's a good story. Actually, it's a bad story. That's why I'm telling it to you. Um, in college, I signed up for a summer missions program, and I went and spent about two and a half months in Hawaii. And it was suffering for Jesus every day that I was there. It was so hard. The people I stayed with had this nice mansion built up on the hill, and he ran a uh, commer- not a commercial, a uh, had a business taking people out on fishing trips, deep sea fishing. He had the biggest boat on the big island, so he could take the big groups. If you had a big group, you had to go through him. He was killing it, making all kinds of money. And uh, he took us out, and we fished, and really nice folks. Great church, great people. And I, I worked there, served at the church for the summer. And we had a vacation Bible school. 
And the pastor of that church wanted to run the missions room at Vacation Bible School. All the kids in the VBS came through his mission station. And his mission station was basically a room kind of decorated, and he showed the little video that they send you with VBS. And then when the video was over, all the kids are sitting there on the floor, and he's sort of sitting on a chair, you know, in front of them. And he says, uh, how many of you boys and girls want to go to heaven when you die? How many hands do you think went up? What do you think was the percentage to that question? 100%. 100% up. I have good news. I have a way that that can happen. All you have to do is pray this prayer after me, and you can go to heaven. It's great. So here's what he told them to do. At that point, I was like, had heartburn. Like, oh, this is, I don't like this. Then I just almost lost it. Because what he said next is, I want everyone to close your eyes, and I want everyone to say the prayer. Everyone's going to say it all together. Like, it was not optional for these kids to say it. Everyone's going to say it. And if you've already said it, it's okay. You can say it again. It won't hurt anything. It's not like two negatives make a positive or anything like that. Just say it again. It's okay. If you haven't said it and you don't mean it, well, just say it with us anyways, and it's okay, and da-da-da. So he went through. 100% of those kids repeated verbatim what he told them to pray. And then he said, all right, way to go. You guys are the best. Head off to crafts. And then at the end of the week, we're sitting there, and he's filling out the little form of uh, how many kids accepted Jesus. You think I'm making this up. He's filling out the little form, how many kids accepted. How many kids we have at VBS this week? We have like 95 kids. Okay, 95. Really? just blew my mind and uh, we talked about it and we just didn't see eye to eye on that particular situation and how it was handled and I tell you that story not to throw him under the bus as a terrible person although I really don't like the way he handled that I don't think it's right at all but to say to you that's a pastor of a Baptist church who walked away from BBS and if he was talking to his buddies he would have said We shared the gospel with 95 kids this week. And my point in telling you the story is to say, just because someone thinks they have shared the gospel with another person does not mean they have really shared the gospel with another person, right? I mean, I can walk in here all football season long with a UTPB football jersey on and say, I am part of the inaugural Falcon football team. I am on the team. I'm so excited. I'm not on the team. Doesn't make me on the team. You just look at me and say, you're crazy. And I'm just telling you that there's a lot of pastors. There's a lot of Sunday school teachers. There's a lot of parents who think they have shared the gospel with their churches, with their classes, with their kids, with their grandkids. And they may be calling it the gospel, but what they've shared with them is not the gospel. And so if we're going to talk about the truth, the things that you need to know and believe and share and defend, we just have to start very basically and say, what is the gospel? What is this message that we need to know and we need to believe and we need to share, opening our mouth, and we need to be willing to defend? And so we're going to start by saying what it's not. And I'm just going to give you a few things that it's not. And I'm giving you these things because many people think that this is what it is. What is the gospel? Well, it is not simply that we are all okay. We're all okay. That's not the gospel. And 
you would find church-going people, they may not admit to you that this is what they think the gospel is, but when people say things to you like, I just go to church because it just makes me feel better when I go to church. I just feel better going to church. What they're saying to you, a lot of these people, is church is like my weekly therapy session. I go, I get a little pep talk, I get some motivation, guy tells me I'm pretty good, and it's all great, and I just, I'm ready for the next week. It just sort of pumps me up, and I'm ready to go. And the whole idea behind that is just saying, you're okay, it's okay, you can do it, come on, you're doing great, just keep going. That's not the gospel. If you're sharing it at your church, or with your kids, or with your family, or whoever, you're not sharing the gospel, that's not... That's not the message we're talking about. Secondly, it is not simply that God is love. Just telling somebody, well, God is love and he loves you and love, 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 that's not the gospel. It's a partial truth. It is a biblical truth to say that God is love and he has love for sinful people. That's true. But just because you say that does not mean you've shared the gospel with anybody. So it's not enough. It's a, it's a half-truth. The gospel is not simply that Jesus wants to be friends. It is not that he wants to be your buddy. It is not that he wants to set an example for you to follow. He's just, he's like your big older brother and he's just sort of your role model and you just do what he's doing and it's all good and y'all are just going to be buds and hang out. I'm cool with Jesus. That's not the gospel. Fourthly, the gospel is not that we should live rightly. You should live rightly. But as we'll talk about in a minute, you don't. You're a sinner. So the gospel is not just you need to do better at what you have miserably failed at your entire life. You've blown it. You're a sinner. You can't live rightly. You're not going to going forward. And just telling somebody, you need to clean up your life. You need to stop this, stop this, stop this, start this, start this, start this is not sharing the gospel with anybody. Here's a great definition of the gospel. And I'll put it up on the screen, and I think I put this on your outline. I hope I did. If not, you should just buy this book. Mark Dever, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. This guy is a pastor in Washington, D.C. Baptist pastor of Washington, D.C. Here's what I understand the good news to be. The good news is that the one and only God who is holy made us in his image to know him, but we sinned, And cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. When I teach personal evangelism class, this is required reading, and they got to understand this. This is just pretty basic, bedrock stuff. And I hope you see that this is way different than, well, we're all okay. Well, God is a God of love. Well, Jesus wants to be your buddy. He wants to hang out. Uh, You just need to change your life. It's a totally different message. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break this definition down into a few categories. And in doing this, as I break it down and we go through this outline, I'm going to sort of talk out of both sides of my mouth, okay? On the one hand, I want to give you some mental hooks, 
some categories, some very simple statements you can put in your brain so that if I said to you, tell me the gospel, you may not be able to spit that out, but you could spit that out. I promise you, anyone in this room can learn that. And I don't want you to memorize that word for word. I want you to memorize the idea of it. And these big ideas that we're going to hit, I'm going to give you five of them. You memorize them. You can memorize them before we're done tonight. I promise you, they're not hard. Sixth grade kids who went to Kenya with us last year memorized them, and it was not difficult. You can do it. And you memorize those things, and you have them in your brain, and you've just got sort of categories for this is what the gospel is is. It's a message about da, 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 da. Now, on the other side, I do not, tonight or any other night in this class, want to give you some canned formulaic thing that you're going to memorize, and then any time you talk with a lost person, you're going to say, okay, I, I got this memorized. Here we go. I got to get every piece of information out word for word, and you're just like reading off a script. I don't want to do that. I don't want you to just memorize it. I want you to understand it. And when you understand it, you're not going to have to worry about memorizing it. You're just going to know it, and you're going to get it, and it's going to make sense to you. So here we go. The place you start is with God, and you have to start with the idea that God is holy. You cannot start with the idea that God is love. You have to start with the idea that God is holy. And before we even talk about holiness, let's just back up and say, why are we starting with God? That's where the Bible starts, right? In the beginning, God He's just there. No explanation, no lineage, no description of where he came from. He just is. That's where this story begins. That's where we begin. When you're talking with somebody, you have to begin with God. If you look at, I don't want to put a percentage on it. If you look at a lot of gospel tracts, little booklets that I want to tell people about the gospel. Not all of them, but a lot of them. They jump right in and they start one of two places. Either they start telling you how rotten you are first, or they start telling you how great Jesus is first. People need to hear both of those things. We're going to get there, but you have to start where the Bible starts and you have to talk about God first. Here's the thing. There may, I doubt that there was, but Maybe there was a day in the United States where you could assume the average person in our country had an orthodox idea of God. When you said the word G-O-D, God, the mental image that came into their mind was fairly accurate with the biblical picture. Maybe that day existed for a lot of folks in the United States. It does not exist in 2016. When you say God to the average person on the street, they are not thinking what you are thinking something completely different comes into their mind. I had this experience with some, some friends from Taiwan in college. I've told you about these guys, and I'm trying to talk with them and share the gospel with them, and I just, I don't know anything. And in my foolishness and my ignorance fumbling over myself, I say, what's the name for God in, in Chinese? And they tell me. And I, so as I'm talking to them, I'm trying to use this word, God, that they tell me about. And then I come to find out that this word they told me about is so filled with unbiblical, idolatrous images, and I'm using that word, and when they hear that word, they're thinking about something that is not what I'm talking about. That happens to people who aren't from Taiwan. That happens when you talk to people from Odessa, Texas, and you say, hey, let me tell you about God. Right off the bat, 
they might be thinking something that you are not thinking. And so you gotta, you got to frame the debate here. God is holy. What does that mean? It means that he is whole, he's unique, and he's perfect. And you can look up Isaiah 6, and you can look at Revelation 4. Both of those passages say that God is holy, holy, holy. The only attribute of God raised to this third degree once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. And God is telling you in these two verses, this is God's, this is my chief attribute. This is the most important thing about me that you need to understand. It's not that I'm loving. It's not that I'm just. It's not that I'm righteous or I'm patient. All of those things are secondary to this idea that I am holy. I'm whole. I'm unique. I'm the only one. And I'm perfect. And you've got to lay that foundation. God is holy. It means that he's the creator and the sustainer of all that exists. He made it all, and he sustains it all. I know for church-going people on a Wednesday night Bible study, you read that and you say, duh. That, I mean, he's God. But I'm just telling you that the people you talk to who are not followers of Christ... Many of them, when you say, let me tell you about God, they may think of somebody who isn't the creator of everything. They may think of somebody who doesn't actively sustain what he created. They may think of somebody who made it, wound it up like a watch, and backed off from it and really doesn't care about it anymore. Well, we're not talking about that kind of God. You really can't go any further in the discussion until you decide what kind of God we're talking about. He's a creator and the sustainer of all that exists. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in love. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. I'm going to give you the next one and then we'll look at two verses in Psalms while we're in there together. Slow to anger and abounding in love and he is righteous and just. Both of those things you have to hold in balance. They're both true about God. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, and he is perfectly righteous and just. So let's go to the book of Psalms and look at Psalm 86, verse 15. For this idea of of being slow to anger and abounding in love, you could pick one of dozens of verses in the book of Psalms. This is just the one that I put on your sheet. Psalm 86, 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now flip back to the left and look at Psalm 7, 11. 7, 11. We just read, he's abounding in steadfast love, he's slow to anger. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Listen, you're going to talk to people when you start opening your mouth and talking to people about God. You're going to talk to some people if you will ask questions and listen and see where they're coming from. You're going to talk to some people and their idea of God is this angry, vengeful, old man, sitting up in the heavens, just 
He got his finger cocked ready to thump people on the head when they act out of line. That's their idea of God. And when something goes bad in their life, you know that's what they think because they say, God's just, God is whipping me into shape here. He is beating me over. He is punishing me. And for those people, you need to say, you know what? He is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day, but he's also abounding in steadfast love. And he's slow to anger. And those people need to hear that God is like that. And you're going to talk to other people who say, look, he's just this, this big, nice dude up in the, in the sky. He's like your grandpa up there, and he's laid back, and it doesn't matter what you do. His job is to forgive. That's why he's there. He exists to forgive us of all our mistakes and our failures. And those people need to hear you say, you know what? He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but you need to understand that he is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. And you got to figure out where somebody's at. you got to understand what they think about God, what they believe about God, and this is the picture that you have to help paint for them. Lastly, we could list lots of things under here, but here's the last one. God is holy. That means he is the lawgiver. The lawgiver. Exodus 20 is God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. So you can look at those later if you need a refresher. Flip to the New Testament and look at James 2. This is a good transition to our next point. James 2. All the way to the back almost in the New Testament. James 2 verse 10 and 11. You ready? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he, we're talking about God, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Saying to you and me, it doesn't matter how well you think you have obeyed. You have crossed the line somewhere and that means you've crossed God's line and he's the holy lawgiver, which means you're a lawbreaker. It's not like you've just sort of made one mistake but you're good on all the rest. You're a lawbreaker. And society trains us to think that's not fair. How are you going to say I'm guilty for breaking the whole law when I haven't broke the whole law? And the issue, the argument that James is making is because the same God gave all of it. The law is not some arbitrary thing. The law came from a holy God. And he's the one that you've crossed. You know this is true in practical terms too because if any one of you got arrested for, let's just say, robbing a bank. You go down the street and you rob a bank. Gunpoint. They catch you. You're a bad bank robber. They take you to trial. And you stand before the judge and you say, Your Honor, I have never hurt my children. I have never cheated on my tax returns. I have never watered my yard on the day I was not supposed to and water restrictions. I've never done that. The judge is going to say, Great, but you're a lawbreaker, you're guilty. You've crossed the law. And that's what James is saying. So that moves us from God is holy to we are sinful. This is the second big heading we're going to talk about. We are sinful. 
And in the words of my preacher growing up, we're way worse than we'd like to think we are. So here we go. Are you ready? We sin because we are sinners. We'd like to flip that and say that we are sinners because we sin. That's just not the biblical teaching. Makes us uncomfortable, makes us feel like it's not fair, makes us feel like it shouldn't be that way. But the Bible says you you show up here already affected by Adam's sin. That's the argument in Romans 5. That's the argument in Psalm 51 5. It says, I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me. I hadn't broke the law yet, but I was a sinner. Adam's sin affects us. You say, I don't think that's fair. I wasn't there when they ate that fruit, and I don't like it. Well, first of all, it doesn't matter if you think it's fair or not, because that's the way it is. Secondly, if you don't want, this is the biblical argument in Romans 5, if you don't think it's fair that Adam's sin should count for you, why in the world would you think it's fair that Jesus' death would count for you? That's the parallel in Romans 5. And the teaching of the scriptures is, we sin because we are already sinners. Secondly, all people are totally depraved. Now, a lot of people hear that phrase and just lose their mind and think, that's not true. I am not as bad as I could be. And with some of you, I would beg to differ. You're pretty bad. I don't know that you could be much worse. But when we say you're totally depraved, we don't mean, I don't mean you're as bad as you possibly could be. I don't mean you're doing the maximum amount of evil and wickedness and sin and destruction in your life. I mean you in your totality are affected by sin. Every part of you is affected by sin. Your emotions, your mind, physically this world has been affected by sin, your heart, all of us. There's not one corner of us that has escaped the effects of the fall. That's what it means to say we're totally depraved. And look at Genesis 6-5. I mean, it's right at the beginning of the Bible, right after the fall, and it's a perfect summary of people in Noah's day, and it's a perfect summary of every one of us in this room, left to ourselves apart from God's grace. You remember we looked Sunday at the verse that said, forever God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, and he's just piling up all these words to make his point. Forever, it's firmly fixed in the heavens. His emphasis is not changing. Here's the emphasis in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You're not just wicked, you're greatly wicked. And it's not just the things you do and say that are wrong, it's the intentions of your heart. It starts way deep inside of you before anything ever comes out of you. And it's only evil apart from God's grace, and it's only evil continually. So that's the picture of us, biblical picture. Thirdly, sin renders us unable to come to God on our own. Meaning, the problem we find ourselves in is a problem we can't fix. Not a thing you can do to fix your dilemma. John 6, look it up later. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't do it. You don't have the ability to do it apart from grace. Romans 3, 10 to 18, there is no one righteous, not a single 
blasted person. Not one. Blasted is not in the text. I put that in there. Just a, there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. No one. We'll see that in the book of Psalms in a couple of weeks. We're unable to come to God on our own. Fourth, God's wrath is directed towards sinners. New Testament makes that clear. Old Testament makes that clear. It's not debatable. God is angry towards sin. Psalm 711, he is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. Romans 118, the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Ephesians 2, 3, we are children of wrath. Little hell, hellfire and brimstone like we talked about Sunday. And fifth, sin results in death. That's why in the genealogy in Genesis 5, right after the fall, it's the only genealogy in the Bible where it makes the point to say, this guy lived this long, he had a kid, he was this old, and guess what happened at the end of his life? He died. And guess what happened to the next guy? He died. And the next one died, and the next one died, and the next one died. And Enoch was lucky, and he got to go straight to heaven. But then the one after him died. And they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. They all died. Sin leads to death. God promised that in the beginning. So we're talking with people, right? We're sharing the gospel with them. We've said a lot of stuff. We haven't talked about Jesus yet. We've talked about who God is. We've made sure we're all on the same page on understanding who is the God that we're talking about. We've got to frame that debate before we ever jump in and start talking about Jesus. And then we've got to say, wait a minute. Before we talk about Jesus, we've got to talk about us. What's our condition? Who are we in God's sight? What is our relationship with him? What's that like? So we've set that stage, and now we're ready to tell people Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And I'm just gonna, let's just put both of these up here sort of back to back. First, people need to understand the person of Christ, meaning they need to know who he is, the truth about his identity. And I've given you all sorts of verses there. You can look them up. Lots of great stuff. So they need to know the person of Christ. They also need to understand the work of Christ. What did he come here to do? And there's at least one verse on there that I hope a lot of you still remember. Luke 19.10, he came to seek and save the lost. And you can go through all these different verses. Here's my point on this idea of Jesus is the answer. When I say people need to understand who he is and what he did. Brooke and I used to live next door to some Mormon missionary guys. They lived about three doors down from us. And they would come down and visit. They would come to some things we did at our uh, apartment complex. And I would talk to these guys, and uh, you say something to these guys like, well, you know, here's the thing. They're, they're giving you their spiel. You say, look, I, I believe Jesus died for my sins. And you know what they're going to say when you say that? Me too. You can say, well, uh, then you're sort of taken aback, and you say, yeah, but I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what they're going to say? We do too. This is great. We believe all the same things. And they're using our vocabulary, but behind their back they have a different dictionary. And they're saying all the same things that you say, but they don't mean the same thing. And that doesn't just happen when you talk with a Mormon. That happens when you talk with people, just average folks in Odessa, Texas. Happens when you talk to 
people who go to Baptist churches on Sunday morning for crying out loud. If you really sat them down and said, what do you believe about Jesus? Tell me who do you think he is and what happened when he died on the cross? I bet you'd be shocked at the answers. Or maybe you would just say, I don't even know how I would answer that. I just know there's a guy named Jesus and he died. You've got to be very careful when you're talking with folks that you say, you understand who Jesus is. You understand he is fully God and he is fully man. You understand he made you in the beginning, right? You understand he sustains the universe by his word. He sustains it all. You understand he died on the cross to take the punishment and the wrath and the judgment that should have fallen on you. Not just to die for sort of sin in general. Not just to set a good example by dying on the cross and we say he died for us. He died to take your punishment. He became cursed for you. He became sin for you. You start talking to people in those sorts of terms, all those verses I've given you, that's when this friend and this friend and all these other people say, well, that's not really what we believe. You say, oh, we don't believe the same thing. And so we're pointing people to the fact that Jesus is the answer who is he and what did he do? Okay? At this point, a lot of people make a, a left turn out into left field that drives me up the wall, and I know it drives some of you guys up the wall, right? You say, God's a good, holy God, and he's loving, and he's good, and he's just, and you're a sinner, and you need Jesus, and this is who he is, and he died for you on the cross. And the next thing they say is what? What you need to do now is invite Jesus into your heart. That sounds okay to you because you probably grew up in church. Do you know what that sounds like to a person who is not a follower of Jesus, did not grow up in church? That sounds creepy. What do you do? Invite him into my heart? Like send a card in the mail with RSVP on the bottom? Or what are you talking about? Invite him in. He's going to come in like in They don't know what you're talking about, and we sort of laugh about it and joke about it. Nobody knows what that means. You don't know what that means. You know why you don't know what it means? It's not in the Bible. It's just something we made up because we said, oh, look, kids, kids are kind of dumb. They can't understand, turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. So let's just tell them, invite him into his heart. That makes a lot more sense. No, it doesn't. Any kid down the hall in Awana can understand what it means to turn from sin and put your faith in Jesus. If they can't under, understand it, you need to explain it better. Or I need to explain it better. So at this point, we've said God is holy. We're sinful. Jesus is the answer. We're not asking people to invite Jesus into their heart. We're asking people to repent and believe. We must repent and believe. Those are the biblical terms. That's what conversion looks like in the Bible. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. What is repentance? It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Change of mind that leads to a change of life. We're, we're running short on time, so you get to look these up. Second Timothy says God grants repentance to people. They can't conjure it up on their own. Second Corinthians says there's real repentance and there's fake repentance, and you've got to be careful about that. One is just saying, I'm sorry, for all the consequences of what I've done and I'm sorry I feel bad about it and I just feel really guilty and lousy and the other one says I understand that I've offended the holy God and I 
am turning away from that. I hate it like he hates it. And they're totally different things. So repentance is a change of mind. That's literally what the word means. Your mind is changing and it plays out in a change of life. What is faith? It's a trusting in and resting on Christ. And there's so many verses that you can go to to help your children or your friends or your parents or your coworkers or whoever understand what faith is. It's talked about receiving him, believing in him, putting our faith in him. All of these verses talking about trusting and resting on Christ. Okay? One last category. Because here's the thing. Let's say you stop right there. Okay? You're sitting down with somebody, you live in the Bible Belt, and you say, look, God is holy, and we're sinners, and Jesus is the answer, and what you need to do is repent and believe. There's an awful lot of folks in this town that would look you in the eyeball and say, done it. Check, 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 check. And you and I look at their life, and there is no question that they are not a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Not even in the ballpark. It's not debatable. You say, that's very judgmental of you. It is. And we have full biblical warrant to make that judgment. Might make people uncomfortable. Might make people think we're narrow-minded. That's fine. The Bible gives us full warrant to look at somebody's life. My life, your life, anybody's life. And to say, what do you have to show for it? Is this just an intellectual thing? Like the demons can answer all the right questions, but doesn't play out in their life that's not what we're talking about so here where we live you gotta I hate to say you have to add to the gospel that's not what we're saying you have to be more clear right there's a lot of places in the world and a lot of places in the United States you can go through all of that and people will be honest with you and say I have never done that not even close but here people have been lulled into this cultural Christianity where they just think oh I grew up going to VBS. I went to youth camp when I was in high school, and my mom used to drag me to church, and yeah, I'd done all that stuff. Zero change in their life. And so the last thing I think you and I ought to be careful and faithful to share with people is this. We must follow Jesus. And this isn't adding to the gospel. It's just explaining how the gospel plays out in somebody's life. Great Commission is a call to make disciples, not decisions. We do not care how many people pray a prayer, raise a hand, walk an aisle, get dunked. That's not the measuring stick of quote-unquote success. The measuring stick of success is how many people are growing as disciples following Jesus Christ. That's what we're trying to make. Jesus says, go make disciples of all the nations. And if you're going to do that, you've got to baptize them, but you also have to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So we're making disciples. Following Jesus. Secondly, Jesus defines what it looks like to be his friend. It is true that Jesus says he's our friend. But he's unlike any other friend I hope that you have because Jesus says you are only my friend if you do what I tell you to do. And if you have friends like that in this room or outside of this room, walking on this earth right now, you need some new friends. But Jesus gets to say that. You're my friend if you do what I tell you to do. Jesus says anyone who would come after him must take up their cross. 
We talked about this in our study on, in Luke a few months back. This is not just for the disciples. This is not just for pastors, missionaries, deacons, elders, Sunday school teachers. This is any person who wants to come after me. Anyone who's interested in signing up for salvation, for life, forgiveness. You, you have to take up your cross. You must do it. In the end, Jesus says he will not know many who claim to know him. I think he's talking about the Bible belt. We know him. We think we know him. We know about him. And in the end, Jesus says, this kind of is a slap in the face to some of us maybe, but he just says, it really doesn't matter if you know me, it matters if I know you. And to a lot of these folks, he's going to say, I never knew you. Not like I used to know you and then you blew it. I never knew you. It wasn't real. We're not saved by good works, but we are most certainly saved for good works. Ephesians 2. And I know we're not looking these verses up. You can look them up. And if you think I've missed it, let's talk about it. Um, Let's discuss it. Here's a few concluding thoughts. I don't remember if I put these on your outline or not. Just a few things to wrap it up. They're not on there, but they'll be up on the screen. When you talk about these things that we've discussed tonight with somebody, you're talking about gospel truths with people. Okay? It may not always be possible for you to regurgitate this outline on somebody at work or at school or in the office or in an elevator or at a counter when you're checking out. But anytime you talk about these things, you are talking about gospel truths. It doesn't necessarily mean you have shared the gospel with somebody, but you are talking about gospel truths, and people need to hear these things, okay? Secondly, I think typically you kind of focus on the lowest level until you reach understanding and agreement. Here's what I mean. If I'm talking with my Catholic family member, and I have some, I'm not going to talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus until we're really square on what repentance and faith look like. We gotta, you gotta, these ideas kind of build on each other, right? If I'm talking with my Mormon buddy from high school, I'm not going to talk to him about who Jesus is until we can settle the issue of who is God in the first place because we disagree about that. We can argue all day about who Jesus is. We don't agree on a more basic fundamental issue. And as you think about the people that you're talking with, you kind of have to to make sure you're building with them and, and talking about these things. Thirdly, concluding thoughts. Sometimes we aim for the simplest message, and we probably ought to aim for the most biblical message. Sometimes we just say, you know, I just want something easy, something quick, something I can just boil it down and just sort of, here's a little snapshot, microwave it, nuke it, and just give it to somebody. Bang. Easy. Well, it's just, it's not that. We don't really have that. And that's a bad standard anyways. It's not what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission. He didn't say, go make disciples and just give them the bare minimum. Look, 
you're in a hurry, just give them the bare minimum of what they need and then go on to the next person. He said, make disciples and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. That takes a long time. So if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, share the gospel with them. Don't waste your time arguing about peripheral issues with unbelievers. I don't mean you shouldn't discuss them. I just mean you shouldn't waste your time arguing about them. And you're going to have to have a little bit of wisdom to know the difference. I can't tell you what that looks like and when, the, when you cross the line. I can just tell you, you probably know it. You're talking with somebody, there comes a point where your discussion just turns into an argument. And usually an argument is just on some sort of tangential, peripheral, not all that important issue. And you've got to do your best to not get in just a bickering match and bring it back to these core truths. So here's, how, here's what this looks like for you. Because I do want to equip you to feel confident in this. When we asked people to go to uh, Kenya, when they signed up to go to Kenya last year, we made them go through some evangelism training, and we asked every person who went, all 43, doesn't matter how old you are, how many times you've gone, whatever, you got to memorize this. And I don't mean memorize every bullet point on here, but here's what we wanted them to understand. God is holy. Man is sinful. Jesus is the answer. We must repent and believe and follow Jesus. Any one of you can learn that in five minutes. And you put those categories in your head, and as you're talking with somebody, you're sort of thinking, what, where do I need to engage them? Do we need to go back and lay a foundation of what God we're talking about, that God is holy? Because they may be totally off base, and that's going to throw every other part of your discussion off, off whack. So maybe you need to go back and talk about that. Maybe I need to talk to them about who we are. Maybe they don't have an understanding of sin, or maybe they don't have a, a biblical understanding of who Jesus is. And you put those things in your head... And as you roll through that, I'm telling you, I use those four or five things every time I talk with somebody about Jesus. If they're a kid, if they're 60 years old, 90 years old, on their deathbed, just getting baptized, anywhere in between. If I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody, in my mind, immediately I say, let's talk about the holiness of God. Let's talk about our sin. Let's talk about who Jesus is and what he did. Let's talk about what repentance and faith look like. And let's talk about following Jesus. That's the gospel message summarized. And I don't want you to just memorize it so that you can throw it back onto somebody. But I want you to understand it. And when you understand it, I promise you'll feel comfortable, more comfortable in talking with people about the gospel. So there you go. Running short on time. I'm going to pray. And then uh, I'll ask you to, to pray for a few things this evening. Father, I pray tonight that we would have an understanding and a a grounding in the fact that you are a holy God. I pray that you would drive home to us as we search the scriptures, the, the depths of our sin, the reality of our sin, the horror of our sin. Father, I pray that you would fill us with amazement that God would become man and then that the God man would become sin would would become the curse would take it all the punishment the wrath the judgment all of it for us and I pray that you would help us in our lives to practice godly repentance not worldly repentance I pray that even as we come to you pledging faith that you would You would help our unbelief and you would fill us with faith to trust 
and to rest on the finished work of Christ. And Father, help us to be faithful in following, not just checking off boxes in our minds, not just saying we believe all the right things, but living it out in our lives. We want the gospel, the good news about Jesus to transform us. And I pray for the folks in this room who are followers of Jesus, and I pray that they would think about these things and that they would feel confident in sharing their faith with somebody who is not a believer. And Father, I pray for those in the room who maybe are not followers of Jesus, and I pray that as we've talked about the gospel, that it's touched their heart, that you might grant them repentance, that you might draw them to yourself. Father, we believe that you can do that. We're grateful for who you are and for what you have done for sinful people like us, and we are grateful for the responsibility to take this message to our city and to our country and even to the ends of the earth. And we want to be serious about that and intentional about that. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.